The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Would you please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1? If you brought one, and I hope you did, uh, Matthew 1 is where we're going to be. You can open a phone or a tablet, and uh, we will be reading from the English Standard Version, Matthew chapter 1. If you're online with us, there's a little button on that uh, that online platform that's got a Bible app, and you can open that up. But Matthew 1, we're going to see some, uh, I think, really important things in the text today. As you're turning there, this year's been a a weird year for our church in that... um, you know, we, we've been kind of, we were all in person and then we went all online and now we're kind of split and we got some social distancing and we've got masks and we've got the room all weird and a lot of you are online with us. And so it's been a strange year, but in the midst of that, there have been a lot of new people that have found our church this year and have started attending Fathom this year. So I felt like I needed to give a little bit of info about myself and my journey, just so that you're aware of this. So uh, I wasn't really raised in the church uh, as, as a kid, we didn't really go to church. We, didn't, we weren't church people. Uh, my parents weren't Christians uh, any more than they weren't Buddhist. I mean, they were, they were Christian, but they weren't Christian, if you know what I mean by that. But uh, I wasn't really raised in the church, but I do have uh, in my memory some, some keystone moments in my early uh, years that, that are kind of like Christian experiences, and I wanted to, to explain them to you because I often get asked this question. Hey, Chris, when did you become a Christian? Like, when did you become a Christian? But, but if, if, if I think about my story, that's kind of a difficult question to answer because we never really went to Sunday school regularly, but then it seemed like every once in a while, my mom would have like a guilty conscience or something like she needed, she, 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 she felt like she needed to get us to church. Maybe it was my grandma who was pressuring her, uh, pressuring her. I'm not sure what it was. Maybe she just needed a break. She didn't need a break for my brother and I. So she wanted to schlep us off into Sunday school, but uh, maybe she just didn't want us to grow up to deal drugs and like murder her in our sleep. I'm not sure. But either way, she would wake up and she would get my brother and I out of our beds early and take us to Sunday school. She'd drag us out. And, and now hear me. Um, I hated going to Sunday school. Like I, I hope my daughter loves Sunday school and I know she does here, but like I hated it because I didn't know any of the stories. Like I didn't know the stories. I didn't know any of the songs. There was a song about father Abraham who had sons and there was a song about gushing things. And there's a wee little man in a tree. And I didn't know any of these things, right? I didn't know uh, that any of the hand, everything had a hand motion. Every song had some sort of hand motion going on. I didn't know any of those, right? And I didn't have any friends there. Like I didn't know any of the kids. It was just, it was, it was not a good thing. I remember getting to Sunday school as a, as a young kid and they, they were doing what, what they called sword drills. You know what sword drills are? Sword drills, uh, it's, it's a race in Sunday school, a race to see who could find a book of the Bible the fastest, Right? Nothing like giving a bunch of second graders anxiety attacks in Sunday school. It's like, ah, how do I spell Habakkuk? Quick, you know, find it. And I was that one idiot kid who had to use the table of contents. I didn't know where anything was. But I'm sure at some point in those Sunday school days, I prayed the prayer. Like, I'm sure at some point I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And so, so was that the point when I became a Christian? Like, did I really, when I went every once in a while to Sunday school, did I really trust in Jesus at that point? I'm not sure. Not sure. Another uh, 
memory that I have growing up was uh, on our block, there were some kids uh, down the street from us whose family, they were a Christian family. I know that because they made it very known. And uh, they invited my brother and I to go with them and their kids to their Awana program at their church. Now, if you don't know what Awana is, Awana is like Christian Cub Scouts. That's, I mean, that's the best way I know how to describe Awanas, okay? Uh, they've got vests and sashes and like this crown and you get jewels as you memorize scriptures to put in your, I mean, you get little Christian militant kids all decked out like Patton. That's kind of how it feels when you go to Awanas. And this is not a judgment on Awana. I don't think it is, at least. I think it's a great, a great program, great ministry. But I remember going a couple times as a kid who was not an Awana kid and, and, and all the other kids there with their vests and their, their badges, they're all decked out and looking, they got bling all over themselves. And I show up and I'm just like this one kid with a red vest, nothing on. I look like a Walmart greeter with a red vest. That's all I had going for me at Awana. And I couldn't get anything for my Awana vest because I couldn't, like I, I, wasn't, a, I wasn't a Christian. I, I didn't know the Bible. I couldn't memorize the scriptures. I couldn't win in sword drills at Awana. I was always, lo- but I wanted some bling. I wanted a, at least something on my red vest. So, so there was one pin that they told me that I could get and they call it the salvation pin. And so I, to get this little pin, they said, you gotta, you gotta accept Christ. You gotta be born again, which meant I just had to pray a prayer with an Awana leader. And then they would give me the salvation pin. And they would give me a Butterfinger candy bar on top of that. So I was like, hey, I am double in. I want the bling and I want the candy. Uh, but, but was that when I became a Christian? Because I got the salvation pin and then I stopped going to Awana. But was that when I started to trust in Jesus? And then I've told you all, but like, when I was in eighth grade, a friend of mine invited me to go to youth group with him and a young life group. Uh, and so I started going to this kind of youth group thing. Uh, and I went on, I started going on retreats with these kids and I went to camps like summer camps and winter camps. And I went to do missions trips with them. And, and man, I can remember vividly praying the prayer of salvation dozens of times at dozens of different events, okay, more times than I can count. Like I'd go to a retreat or a camp. I don't know if you've been to a youth camp, but like you get all hopped up on pixie sticks and Mountain Dew all weekend and you're just kind of getting real excited and you're sleep deprived. And you, at that point, you'd give your life to a Christmas tree if they offered, you know, you're just so crazed out, pseudo delirious. And then you get to Saturday night on youth camp and the Saturday night at youth camp is where they preach the emotional gospel message to the kids and they get the band playing the right song on repeat and you've got junior high girls just weeping in little herds of junior high girls and the junior high boys are crying, but they're trying to pretend that they're not. And I'm sure I gave my life to Christ multiple times at youth camp all the time. So the question is, I'm not sure when I became a Christian, (laughs) like technically it could have been at Sunday school as a child. And technically it could have been a a Awana when I got the salvation pin. And technically it could have been at any number of youth events I went to from eighth grade until I graduated from high school. But, but it must have been at some point because I remember vividly at 16 years old, my, right before my junior year of high school, I knew I was saved. I just can't pinpoint exactly when it happened. And how did I know that I was saved? Well, everything had changed in my life. My whole life had changed. And really, this is the main idea that I have for our text this morning. When Jesus comes... He changes everything. When Jesus comes into your life, he changes everything. And even though I don't know the day or the hour that I became a Christian, I know he changed 
everything in my life. It's like I realized that I had been saved. And in our text today, uh, Jesus is going to change everything, and, and we can really pinpoint the, the, the time and the place that it happens for, for our character. We're going to look at a guy named Joseph. Okay, you know Joseph. He's the adoptive father of Jesus. And it's really interesting, as we've been looking at Matthew's gospel account of the Christmas story this year, Matthew's gospel account is told from Joseph's perspective. Okay, Luke's gospel account is not told from Joseph's perspective. It primarily focuses on Mary and her perspective. And listen, Mary gets a lot of reps, okay? Mary gets a lot of, like, a lot of hype. A lot of Christians love Mary, and rightly so, right? Some traditions, they even pray to Mary, okay? They venerate Mary. They're looking for Mary in their toast, like they burn their toast, like, that's Mary, right? Like, that, I mean, that's, she gets a lot of, but Joseph kind of gets the shaft in the Christian community. It's just how it works out. But it's very strange because Matthew seems to tell the story from Joseph's side of the tale, okay? And it's interesting that Matthew puts him front and center, even though we'll never hear about him after Luke chapter 3. You never hear about Joseph again. We think that traditionally he, he died sometime in Jesus' young life, but, but this guy doesn't get a lot of rap, but I want to give him some today. So when Jesus comes, he changes everything. And just like he changed everything in my life, he's going to do so for Joseph today. So here we go. Let's, look, let's start walking through this passage. It's a very familiar passage. I hope that you'll see it with fresh eyes today. Matthew chapter one, we're going to start in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now those two first verses there, the text says that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. That's the word, betrothed. And the first thing we need to understand is what is meant by betrothed. What is a betrothal? Okay, because that's not something that we practice in our day and age. We have engagements and then we have marriages, but we don't have a betrothal thing. So in the Jewish culture in the first century, a young woman would be betrothed to a man, okay? And that betrothal was a legally binding contract. It was legally binding where for all intents and purposes, the couple was married. They were married, but the betrothal period would be like the first year of that marriage. And the, 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 the husband would live with his parents. The wife would live with her parents for one year before they could move in together and consummate the marriage. And so serious was this betrothal that it required a legal writ of divorce to break it, to annul it. Okay, uh, so as I'm reading this this week, studying this this week, I had to think to myself, that's the dumbest tradition I've ever heard of. I can't think of a worse one, okay? I do a lot of premarital counseling for young couples. Can you imagine if a young couple came to me and sat in my, yeah, I did your premarital counseling. Can you imagine if you came to me and you sat in my office and I just told you, hey, you know what? Bible says betrothal. It's biblical. Why don't we try this? Okay, you guys get married, do the whole thing, the dress, the cake, all of that, get married, and then you live with mom and dad, and she'll live with mom and dad. You don't get to do anything, you know, for the first year. Can you imagine that conversation? I mean, it would never happen. There's no one who's like, yeah, legal marriage with none of the benefits and all of the responsibilities, sign me up for that. Like, no one's doing this. But families in the first century, here's the reason why I think they would practice the betrothal. 
They wanted to make sure that the bride was pure. Virginity was a huge deal, much larger deal than it is culturally today. And so, so they required, I think, this year of waiting before you could consummate the marriage to make sure that the, the girl was actually not pre-pregnant or something like that. And then after a year, that was clear. And so then they could live together and they could consummate the marriage. So, so Joseph and Mary, they're practically, publicly, and legally married for all intents and purposes, just none of the benefits. That's what this means uh, when Matthew writes this. And then it says that before they came together, so before they consummate the marriage, they're already betrothed. Before they come together, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That's what the text says. Apparently, the betrothal thing paid off. Like it was, it did its job. Mary shows up pregnant. And you got to imagine Joseph's like, he's like, whew, man, dodged a bullet there, okay? Because that's what the betrothal is meant to do. Find out if the girl is actually sleeping around. So um, Matthew lets us know in like a comment to the readers that the child was from the Holy Spirit, right? That's what the text says. Matthew lets us know that the child was from the Holy Spirit, but in real time, no one else knew that. You realize that? Like nobody else knew that. In real time, that verse read like this. But before they came together, she was found to be with child, period. That's what everybody else in Nazareth knows. She's just pregnant, and she's betrothed, okay? Now, this is what is theologically known as the virgin birth. Okay, the virgin birth. It's probably better to label it the virgin conception. Okay, that's more uh, accurate as to what this is. Uh, but this complicates the situation really quickly for Joseph and for Mary. If you think about it, you'll see that there's a conundrum. I mean, imagine for Joseph, like how humiliating this would be, right? Like how, how, how would it have been to hear from the girl that you just legally married, but you've not been allowed to sleep with her yet, that, that, that she's pregnant, right? By, by public opinion, everybody in Nazareth is thinking that either Mary is guilty of some sin or Joseph is guilty of some sin. But somebody's sinning here, right? If, if it, either Mary has been unfaithful to Joseph by breaking the betrothal or Joseph has cheated the betrothal and consummated the marriage early. But somebody's this dirty pool either way, right? That's what's happening here. She's found to be with child. And so, I mean, you can imagine she tries to tell Joseph, like she tries to convince him. Hey, I'm, I know I'm pregnant, but I'm a virgin. And, and you got to imagine Joseph's like, really? You can't come up with something better than that? I mean, we're from the backwoods of Nazareth, but like we all know that virgins don't get pregnant. But we're told, we are told, Matthew tells us, the reader in verse 19, that 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 there's going to be a, a Holy Spirit thing. There's like this, the Holy Spirit is behind this. But Joseph doesn't know that. So his plan then in verse 19 is that, uh, it says that Joseph is a just man. He doesn't want to put her to shame. So he plans to divorce her quietly. Now, this is a window into Joseph's character for just a moment here, okay? Joseph has a dilemma here. It says that he's a just man, so he's a righteous man. Like, he cares very genuinely about Mary and her reputation, but the dilemma is he has to divorce her. 
Like in the, in the Old Testament and really into this New Testament culture, this is an honor-shame culture. It's a very different culture than the culture we live in today. So in the first century, there's really not a lot of option here, okay? Jewish law virtually demanded that a husband expose his wife who had by infidelity so diminished his honor. Like he, he, is, he is experiencing shame from his community if he does not actually divorce her. Yet it says Joseph did not want to put her to shame. He cares about her. He cares about her reputation. He does not want to make an example of her and disgrace her as an adulteress publicly. So he compromises by deciding to divorce her privately in quiet, essentially in front of maybe two or three witnesses rather than in front of the entire Town. So that's what the story is kind of setting up, this, this dilemma. Now he's got, now Joseph's got this divorce plan in mind, and the story continues. Let's look at verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the angel shows up to Joseph. Behold, an angel showed up to Joseph in a dream, and he gives him in this dream five pieces of information. And these are very essential pieces of information to make the story go the way that it does. The five pieces of information that are given to Joseph in the dream from an angel are these. First, it's unnecessary for him to divorce Mary. That's the first thing. Hey, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. You don't need to divorce her. That's from the angel. That's the first piece of information. The second piece, and, and maybe the most important piece of information in this dream is this. Mary's pregnancy is from the Holy Spirit. That is super helpful information from the angel, right? I mean, that's, that is necessary information for Joseph. Who knows that's not his child? And listen, he, he, he may have gone to public school, but he knows that childs don't come around from virgins very often. So this is really important. It's gotta be somebody's baby. And God, through an angel, reassures him, no, no, this baby is from the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, this is a big deal. It's a big piece of information. I would not, I mean, it would take an angelic vision for me to buy into something like this, right? If, if all I'm engaged to Marcy, she shows up pregnant and tries to convince me that that was conceived by the Holy Spirit, you know, there better be a burning bush in my living room not being consumed or something. Like an audible voice from the heavens would have to convince me that that is true. This is a very important piece of information, okay? Third piece of information, uh, the angel says she will bear a son. So this will be a boy. It's like a divine first century ultrasound, okay? Nobody knew what gender their children were at that point until they showed up. But there you go. You're gonna have a boy, Fourth, uh, you're going to need to call him Jesus. Call his name Jesus. They, the angel gives him the name. And then fifth, in connection with that name and what it means, he will save his people from their sins. So to Joseph, you need to name him Jesus, which means God saves. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He is going to be the long-awaited Savior, the Messiah. See, when Jesus comes into Joseph li Joseph's life, he changes everything. 
This is a life changer. This dream is a life changer for Joseph. Because the reality, like we've already said, is that he's getting the dream. Mary knows that she's a virgin and she's pregnant. And so she knows it's from the Holy Spirit, but everybody else has no idea. This gospel won't be penned for decades, decades before anybody could even begin to believe that there was an immaculate conception. I mean, can you imagine, like, like this angel didn't show up to, it would have been really nice. If I had been Joseph in that dream, I'd been like, hey man, could you just go tell the rest of the town this? Like you'd make my life a lot easier if you just, I mean, uh, the, the, the public opinion on these newlyweds must have been terrible. It's actually one of the reasons why what we talked about last week, after they flee to Egypt and then they come back and they try to reside in Judea, I think it's one of the main reasons why they want to go back to Judea instead of returning to Nazareth. Because why would you ever want to go back to the hometown where you're considered broken, busted up, and a sinner? But God has other plans for them. Now let's finish up the passage, and then I think there's going to be some major implications to derive from it. So look at verse 22 to the end. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, verses 22 and 23, Matthew adds a little bit more commentary for us that was not, it's not part of the dream, okay? It's not part of common knowledge. It's just commentary for us, the readers. And he, he quotes Isaiah, and, uh, who's a prophet in the Old Testament, and essentially is kind of reminding us that Jesus is, is a part of a larger story. So if you remember a couple weeks ago when we started this sermon series, we talked about Matthew's gospel, and, and that Matthew intentionally is kind of targeting and writing towards people uh, who are Jewish. He's, he's writing towards the Jewish perspective a little bit more, and he uses a word that, that, that Jesus came to fulfill what the prophet had spoken. That's a word that Matthew likes to use, fulfill. And I think the point of that is that Jesus isn't showing up to start a new religion. Jesus isn't showing up to bring a new thing necessarily, but rather he's coming to fulfill what God had already begun in the Hebrew people. And, and, and ultimately it's a fulfillment of God's promises. I think that's what he's saying there. So 2 Corinthians chapter one says this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. All of the promises, all of the Old Testament promises, they find their yes. Jesus is the fulfillment of them. That's why in verses one through 17 of chapter one, there's a genealogy covering Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's a fulfillment of all of that lineage and those covenant promises. And Matthew identifies more about this child than just simply this, this a miracle conception, okay? He's identifying him as Emmanuel, as God with us. This isn't simply a miracle child. It's not just a miracle birth, but rather he's the fulfillment of everything that God's been doing throughout history. God is now with us. 
God in the flesh. And now the thing about Christmas is that so many of us have become so comfortable with this story that it just doesn't hit us the way that it ought to anymore. Like, I kind of hate Christmas in a certain way because as a preacher, every single Advent, it's like Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, circle down to Isaiah 9 and then re- rinse and repeat. You know, that's, uh, that's all the material I have to work with. I got to preach this every year. You've heard this story every year if you've come to church. You know this story, but, but this story is about God is now with us. He is dwelling among us. This is an incredible story if we actually had lenses to see it fresh. When Jesus comes, he, he changes everything. And, and so Joseph is about to be changed, right? This is what happens in the rest of the story. He, he wakes up from his dream, right? He didn't have a little commentary with the Isaiah quote. So he just wakes up from his dream and he immediately does what the angel says. Those five pieces of information, he, he, he actually obeys them. He believes and then he obeys. This is the mark of the Christian. We believe and then we obey. So he, he takes Mary as his wife. He doesn't divorce her quietly. Okay, he, they, they move out of this betrothal period and that's why, so they move in together and that's why they would have traveled to Bethlehem together. Right? They never would have traveled there together if they were still betrothed. So they actually move out of that uh, into their marriage. But it says that they do not consummate the marriage. He does not sleep with her until after the time of Jesus' birth to further ensure there were no questions about where Jesus came from. Joseph is his adopted father, but God is his heavenly father. Now, here's what I want us to do with the last bit of our time. I want us to look at something that I think is really important that we have not looked at in this first chapter of Matthew uh, this month. So if you look back at Matthew chapter one, verse one, the very first verse of this, this book, really, of the New Testament. Matthew 1, one says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, in the Greek, The word that we get translated into genealogy in the English Standard Version is actually the Greek word genesis, okay, which which would mean like origin or beginnings, okay? Uh, So it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ, the origin of Jesus Christ. Now, if you scroll down to verse 18, the first verse that we studied today, this is how that verse begins, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, the word that is translated birth in verse 18, anybody want to guess what Greek word that word is? It's Genesis. It's translated genealogy in verse 1, but it's the same Greek word, and in verse 18, it's translated birth. So these two verses could literally be translated the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And now the Genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, this is incredibly important, more than just kind of like Bible trivia, okay? This is incredibly important. In Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17, this long genealogy, I think Matthew is establishing the genesis, the origin of Jesus' natural existence. 
He's going through his lineage. This man was the son of this man who had this man. This guy begat this guy. This guy begat that guy. It's a natural lineage of Jesus. But then in, in verses 18 through 25, the passage we just studied, Matthew moves on to the genesis of Jesus' divine origins. He starts with his natural origins and then he moves to his divine origins and says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Not from that line of men and women. It's from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is of the utmost importance. Matthew chapter one is of the utmost importance because here's what I will try to argue. The virgin conception is essential to our salvation. Let me make my argument. Jesus can only be the savior. What the angel said, the angel said he will save his people from their sins. Jesus can only be the savior of the world if the virgin conception is true. Why? Well, let's, for a second, let's put on our, I need you to put on your big boy, big girl theology pants for just a minute. This is, this is one of those things that we've got to really put our brains on for this. Okay, it'll all come together. Jesus based on Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25, is divine. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the God man. He is God. And thus as God, he has all of the attributes and characteristics of God. That means that he is infinitely holy and infinitely just and infinitely perfect. He is deity. But Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17 show us that he is also Natural. He is deity, but he's also natural. He is a man. And as a man, he can be tempted and he can be hurt and he can be betrayed and ultimately he can be killed. He can die. So Jesus is God. He is infinitely holy and thus he is able to atone for the sum total of every sin ever committed in the entire world. But if he's only God, he can't die because God can't die. He's eternal. But Jesus is also a man. So he can die and thus he is uniquely qualified to identify with us and actually become a sacrifice for sin. This is, this is why this is so important. He is the son of God and he is the son of man, both. He is fully God and fully human. And this thing wouldn't have worked in any other way. Only the son of God and the son of man as one incarnate being could become the savior of the world. If you took our Fathom Academy Christian theology course uh, online this summer, uh, the, the, you, you can go back and you can still watch all those. Those are all still online if you want to watch those. But um, this is what is called the hypostatic union. That's a great word, hypostatic union. Write that one down. Drop that at your next Christmas party. Oh, yeah, I love celebrating Jesus born on earth. Oh, you mean the hypostatic union? And they're like, whoa, who's that guy, right? Like, I mean, you could be really impressive, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man and thus he can be our savior. Now I know last week we, 
we really hammered in and focused in on Jesus as our king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. But that should in no way diminish his role as savior. The debt we owed to God the king was paid in full by God the son. This is a fundamental theology for those of us who follow Christ. So let me quote a couple of guys who are way smarter than me, theologians, scholars, pastors. Let me quote uh, pastor and scholar N.T. Wright. This is what he says about the incarnation. How can you live with a terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself walked into our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham, a total nonsense. Most people unable to cope with either of those two things are condemned to live in the shallow world in between. That's just fancy N.T. right talk for what I've been saying. Then when Jesus comes, it changes everything. Or here's another quote from uh, John Stott in his book, Basic Christianity. This is what he says. He says, if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reasons to, to uh, reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. That was Herod last week. They were afraid of him and wanted to run away. That's what happens to Peter in the gospels. Or they were absolutely smitten with him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. See church, I don't know exactly when I became a Christian, but I do know that he's changed everything in my life. The question I want to pose to you this Christmas, this year is this, has he changed everything about you? I mean, he's either a sham or he's real. You have to decide what he is. He's either who he claimed to be or else he's a depraved, wicked lunatic. You, you either need to fall in, at his feet in absolute adoration or you've just got to move on. You've got to pass him by. There is no in-between. When Jesus comes, he changes everything. Has he changed you? Has he changed you? If you aren't sure, listen, I mean, even online, we'd love to talk to you about this. You can send us an email or chat with us. We'd love to have this conversation, but this is what Christmas is about. This is essential to our faith. This is why we sing words like this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This Christmas, behold the Son of God. Behold the son of man. 
Behold the King of kings who is also the Savior of the world. Behold Jesus this Christmas. Let's pray together, church. Father, we do thank you for a a very familiar passage, a familiar text, a familiar story, sometimes a bit too familiar for our own good. But as we peel back the layers, as we look a little bit deeper, we find rich, deep, meaningful truths about who you are and what you came to accomplish. And so, Father, we do bless you for sending the Son, your only Son, to live a perfect life, to to be betrayed and to be crucified, to die a death in our place, and ultimately to be raised again to new life, offering salvation in your name. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the son of God and the son of man, that he is the perfect union of of fully God and fully man, allowing for him to atone for sins. Thank you, Father, for this. We pray as as we reflect this Christmas, we would only love you more because of that. Lord, if there are those who, who maybe don't quite get this or maybe for the first time are starting to get this and understand this, maybe, maybe Lord, today would be the day you woo them by your spirit. Maybe today is the day that you show up in whatever dream it is that you give them and, and they would actually for the first time lay down their life before their king and before their savior. I pray towards that end, Father. So God, thank you for this as we... As we march on through the next four or five days, I pray we, we don't miss Jesus this Christmas. I pray we behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.